Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. excited to talk about this topic today. Five of the most expensive foods you can buy that are the cheapest foods you can make at home. <laughs> nice. I'm I'm so excited, Allison. I, I've been talking to you in my head for two weeks, so it's nice that you're finally here. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you in my head. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited because I feel like there's just this notion out there somehow evolved that these ancestral foods or fermented foods or organic regional eating is only for the elite or that it's very expensive and Mm. I just want to try and break the image a little bit today and challenge that notion that nutrition nutritious food has to be out of reach for the average person I think we can all achieve it both in terms of cost and our intellect which is to say our ability to learn these skills these are Mm -hmm. really simple skills which is not to say somebody can't learn a complex skill but i'll be honest my brain can only hold so much information i can only remember so much and i just like things to be nice and simple so i want to reassure everyone that these foods are really stinking simple yeah, I agree. I think so, really the hard, the harder part of it is just to get them into your day. Once you've overcome that hurdle and yeah, you've got them into your processes, they're just, they're just, you don't even need to think about them. Yeah, they're just the things that be. So before we start, Alison, I want to ask you what you had uh, for your, I'll say for your last meal in case you haven't had breakfast yet. Oh, so what, what's you. the last thank thing you ate? <laughs> no, I have had breakfast. I um, I skipped okay. dinner last night, so I thought, oh, I've got to have my breakfast before I talk. And I had a smoothie oh, yeah. with, I'm celebrating the Sicilian avocados that are in our local health food store. Oh, because I did see I really like somewhere. avocado, but I don't want it to come from 5,000 uh, miles away to my home. <laughs> I, I won't do that. So they have Sicilian avocados. There's several companies in Sicily, several kind of adventures that are making avocado. And they are delicious and they aren't bruised and the flavour is just beautiful. So I had a smoothie Mm. this morning with, what did I throw in there? Avocado, loads of ground linseed, um, a raw egg yolk and some kefir grains that were ground up and Mm. some, some Scottish ferment suens, which is the liquid that comes off the top of fermented oats. It's kind of sour and lemony. I put that in there for the liquid. And then I had some cacao nibs left from making tea yesterday. Mm. Put them in there, whisked it all up. And so it was kind of smooth avocado with a hint of chocolate and a nice oh. lots of really good fats from the linseed and the egg and the avocado. And it kind of, it feels like a treat. It was lovely. 
Well, see, right here, your breakfast is the perfect example of what we're talking about. The avocado is undoubtedly the most expensive ingredient that you put in there. And yeah. that's, as you're saying, a luxury for you. It's not like you have those every single day. But everything else is scraps, you know, things that even would have been thrown out, you know, the kefir grains or the leftover cacao from your making your tea. Yeah. These are just scraps of things after you made a product. You're totally right. But if you right. were going to... If you were going to buy that, it would be a $30 yeah. smoothie. <laughs> yeah. That's what really interests me about the Scottish suins because it literally is a ferment of scraps. They make porridge oats mm -hmm. and then the people mm -hmm. used to take what mm -hmm. was left from the mill, yeah, the rubbish, right. and ferment it because it was useful. And so it is, like you said, that scrap, the the kefir grains most people either throw or give away, the cacao husks I've already used for tea and I'm using them again. And it, yeah. Right. That would be really quite expensive outside, I'm sure. <laughs> well, my meal was... Yeah, uh, tell me. I, I'm happy to say that I didn't have beans and pork for once. So. <laughs> <laughs> Branched out a little bit. We're really into making these days what... We're calling it quesadillas. I, I don't think it has anything to do with the real quesadilla. I don't really know mm. where I got that name. But uh, we get these really awesome organic tortillas. And... I put in some raw cheddar and then we cooked black eyed peas in beef bone broth. Mm -hmm. So I put some of those in there. Then after we cook that, you know, in a little bit of pool of grass fed butter, <laughs> then I ate it with baba ganoush, which is okay. a, I think, um, mid East, dish um, but it's eggplants that you roasted in the oven and then skinned and then tahini which I just made from sesame seeds that I toasted on the stove and then just blended up in the Vitamix yeah. and raw garlic and fresh lemon juice cumin sea salt and cayenne pepper and then you blend all that together and it makes this warm divine dip now we picked a lot of eggplants in the summertime and so I made a lot of this and froze it I don't think it freezes the best but mm. it's a pretty decent way to to um to store it I think if if I had thrown it back in the blender for just a second you know yeah it might have been a little bit better but it, se it yeah. separates a little bit in the freezer and then I had a little bit of <laughs> we make tapioca pudding that I I joke is basically a health food but we get you know, tapioca is not that healthy, but we get the tapioca and then we have raw milk and cream, uh, some of the eggs, egg yolks from our chickens and a little bit of maple syrup, a little bit of salt, a little bit of vanilla. It's so good. It's not really a recipe. I don't really think, but <laughs> it's a really good pudding and it's so filling. That sounds so. like such a kind of comforting winter. It's really a total. Nice we ha I haven't. Yeah, we haven't made it in so long, and the kids asked for pudding, and I thought, well, I think I have everything for tapioca pudding, and it is. It's it's just a a thick. It's like a dark yellow custard. It's so good because mm. the yolks are so dark. And then I made um, yesterday. I made a batch of the ginger turmeric tea. So I just take a bunch of knobs of ginger, knobs of turmeric. And then either mm -hmm. whack the peel off of some lemons or just pour some lemon juice, not from concentrate, into the blender with some water and 
blend it all on high in the Vitamix and then mm. strain that through a nut milk bag and add boiling water. And then I just make half gallon jars of that, stick it in the fridge and we heat it or you can drink it cold, but mm-hmm. hot or cold, it's delicious. <laughs> it's another dark lovely. yellow. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Nice, so. nice. Oh, yeah. wow. So that you're really, you're really fooded up. It sounds like you had a gorgeous dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Picked up the, well, that's the thing. I, I was actually thinking when I ate it, honestly, I actually think to, to serve all of that onto my plate, I think I did it in under 10 minutes because um, the baba ganoush was already made in jars mm-hmm. in the fridge and the tapioca was already made in uh, like a little custard bowl in the fridge. Mm-hmm. And... The cheese is already done. The tortillas are already done. The beans are already done. I just make a big pot of them every, you know, two-ish, two or three days and put it in the fridge. So then I can pull it out for anything. I just have cooked beans ready to go. And if we don't eat them in time, you know, give them to the chickens. Yeah, yeah. Nice. But yeah, I think the whole thing took about 10 minutes to make, so. And 10 minutes to eat. Oh, and the tea was already, (laughs) yeah, the tea was already made too. I just had to pour a little bit into a pot on the stove. So, mm, yummy. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, so it's food. All right. Well, speaking of food, let's talk about food. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <Okay. laughs> so let's dive in. So, I actually want to. Um, I'm going to start out with a little selection from a book that I'll recommend to readers. If you want to, if you question the ancestral life on a budget, or if you just question, you know, being able to eat outside of a grocery store or just partially outside of a grocery store, and you just think there's just no way, I challenge you to find a copy of the book Radical Homemakers by Shannon Hayes. I had the most, I think I told you this, and I can't remember if I said it on the podcast, but I had the most serendipitous meeting of this author in in the mountains of New York, (laughs) just stumbled upon this farmer's market where she happened to be and had no idea who she was, but bought all her books. And, (laughs) but I'm just going to read a quote where she talks about food. She says she, she was trying to figure out how to rationalize eating well when it was going to be probably too expensive. So she started doing research and she said, Truth be told, when I crunched the numbers, a farmer's market meal made of roasted local pasture-raised chicken, baked potatoes, and steamed broccoli cost less than four meals at Burger King, even when two of the meals came off the kitty menu. The Burger King meal had negligible nutritional value and was damaging to our health and planet. The farmer's market menu cost less, healed the earth, helped the local economy, was a source of bountiful nutrients for a family of four, and would leave ample leftovers for both a chicken salad and a rich chicken stock, which could then be the base for a wonderful soup. But Mm. when push came to shove, I knew that Burger King would win out. The reason? Many people don't even know how to roast a chicken, let alone make a chicken salad from the leftovers or use the carcass to make a stock. Mainstream Americans have lost the simple domestic skills that would enable them to live an ecologically sensible life with a modest or low income. So with that as my, as my thesis, <laughs> I, I thought I would bring up these five foods and we can, you and I'll just share some of the easy ways we make them and point everybody listening to where they can learn more about making them and just take some of the, you know, weirdness out of them. 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay, let, let's start with bone broth. <laughs> okay, good bone broth is yes, is an absolute staple. Uh, there's a long time when we couldn't even afford to buy meat of the quality we wanted, so we just bought the bones. And you get a lot of protein. There's glycine, lots of nutrients. It helps your body to make glutathione. There's collagen. Everything good comes from bone broth. And it can be pretty expensive to buy at the store. Um, so I looked around here and I found you can buy these frozen bags of bone broth, mm, which is okay. one and a half pounds for $9. So when I think about how much bone broth we go through, that seems like it would be a pretty high price. Did you, could you find it for sale where you live, Alison? Yeah, it's not so easy. I remember it being quite easy in the UK because as people set up to market um, bone broth. Here you can, you can find it in the supermarket. Um, not necessarily kind of everything. So we do like chicken and beef and duck and, and lots of different bone broths here. But you can find... Uh -huh some fresh broth you know with the kind of butters and that on the shelf in the supermarket and okay. uh half a liter you're looking at three or four euros for it um which compared to what we pay to make our bone broth is just i mean i, I couldn't even consider paying that amount of money for the amount of bone broth we use it, it i know forget about <laughs> yeah it wouldn't be usable Right. And, and, and you, you'd be afraid to put it in soup. You'd be afraid to cook yeah. anything with it. You wouldn't want to drink a cup of it in the morning. You'd be like rationing out a tablespoon to everyone. Yeah. I can imagine kind so, of using it for a special occasion, but that's not how we use yeah. bone broth here. So it's not something that you, I would be able to eat every day or use in my kitchen every day at that price. Right. Now I said that there was times when we just bought the bones. We do buy meat now. And so we have leftover bones from things, but you can often buy, I don't know about where you are, Allison, in Italy, but I know here pretty much most butchers, you can go and say that you want to buy a block of chicken bones. And after they take meat off of the bones, they basically have this waste product. Some people buy it for their dogs. Um, but you can, I've bought big boxes of them before from um, Azure Standard as a bulk, like farm, small farm, I don't know what you want to call it, co-op thing <laughs> mm -hmm. that we can get out here. And I bought like a big case of just bones and we cut them up <laughs> with a bone saw and, um, it was a really, really, really cheap way to make a ton of bone broth. Mm -hmm. Now for you, that wouldn't work so well because you have a moderate freezer space, whereas we were able to drop an entire case into our chest freezer. Yeah. You don't have that where you're at. Do you buy bones where you're at? Do you buy them from farms or how do you get bones? Yeah, so the way we work at the moment is the farmer that we buy virtually all of our meat from I just ask him for bones and he gives them to us for free. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So whenever I, I no, do I've run into that with a lot of farmers Yeah, or people who so, are butchering. Just, but or I think it's because we buy a lot of stuff from him. Maybe, mm -hmm. you know, if I went and just asked for bones, they wouldn't be free, but we're buying right. all of our meat from him. So 
well, I get the I get a bag of them for free and we oh, do that really? every time we place an order. And so then I can just throw them in the freezer if I don't want to make it straight away or make the stock yeah. and then put the stock in the freezer. Regarding exactly. chicken, he, he doesn't sell the chicken bones separately because the chickens are always sold bone in. So what right. we do He's is we'll buy a them. chicken and then we'll cook the chicken and save the bones mm-hmm. and make the stock with the bones. So the chicken right. doesn't happen quite so often as the, as the beef. But, I mean, literally, they're just... I'm not paying any extra for the bones and I'm not paying anything for beef bones at all. Yeah. I mean, I would say the same because we have friends who butcher. See, this is part of the importance of getting into your network of farmers is Mm. when you have a network of farmers, they know um, what you like. And I, my very generous friends keep giving me bags you know of tallow and bones and you know organs and and I'm not paying for them um but they know that I use them and they would rather they get used than get trashed and even those of them that use it you know if they're butchering a lot of animals then there's no way they are going through it all on their own and yeah get into that network but also even just buying bones is cheaper than buying meat completely just straight up buying bones in England, so, we used to pay a couple of, I think, a couple of pounds for a massive bone of um, bag yeah, of beef bones yeah. from our farmer. Now, I have found at um, Whole Foods, which is a chain store mm-hmm. here in the United States, um, their bones are, I feel like they're still pretty expensive. Um, mm. So, I, I, but still cheaper than the meat. <laughs> yeah. But they sell them not even in their meat cooler it's over in a separate section with dog food so wow. you okay. can't even find it yeah it's not even in the regular section so um we make our bone broth almost exclusively out of garbage <laughs> yeah so um we have bones left over as you say from making things and our friends who butcher they all they butcher very well and so if they give you a meat bone there's more meat on it than you know a t-bone steak so we tend to cook those and then we shred the meat and make it into some form of stew once we've then completed making the broth but then when i cut onions or you know carrots celery those sort of things any vegetable the clean scraps just go into a container or a bag in the freezer. And after a while, you've accumulated enough to make broth. And, and you know, I just pull that bag out and dump it into a kettle with the water and the bones. I do suggest if you can, uh, when you throw your bones in the pot and you add water enough to cover, that's how you know that you have the right amount of water, then add a little bit of uh, raw apple cider vinegar and let it sit for half an hour that is alleged to help pull some of the minerals out of the bone i can't tell you for sure because i don't know but that's one of the questions i was going to ask you because i'd heard that yeah i thought i wrote wrote, no ask about do you do the vinegar thing because we do too i do i do i've seen back and forth and i figure you know what it doesn't hurt to do it so i just do Mm. it Mm. um yeah so i don't even know how much our bone broth costs because i just use scraps of you know, trash you can use. Um, that Nourished Kitchen has what she calls her ultimate guide to bone broth. If somebody mm. wants to learn about bone broth, I recommend going there. People have asked me, as long as I've been making bone broth, they've asked me for the recipe and I've always just 
had no idea what they're talking about. I was like, I don't know. You put bones in a pot and you put water in the pot and you boil it. <laughs> but um, her ultimate guide to bone broth will help um, demystify it. So you can ask for beef, uh, knuckles, neck bones, shanks, oxtails, marrow bones. Um, and then for chicken bone broth, you can use the whole chicken. You can use chicken feet. You can use the just the bones of your chicken. You can use the backs, the wingtips. Um, for turkey bone broth, the same. And then mm -hmm. for pork, you can use ham hocks, pork neck bones, um, pork trotters. I, I think I told you in a different conversation we had that I got all the trotters from all the pigs that were being butchered in one day for free because nobody else wanted them except for me. And so um, that was a great way to get um, bone bones for free. And then mm -hmm. for books... If anybody wants to read, I, I prefer sitting down and reading versus going online, although I do both. But Nourishing Broth by Sally Fallon Morell has a lot of information about bone broth. If you aren't really convinced you should drink bone broth, then just go ahead and read that book. You'll be sold on it. It's the best sports drink you'll ever run across, I swear. It's the best sports drink in the world. Um, and then Nourishing Traditions, which is just her general larger cookbook also has some information on bone broth do you have Excellent. any favorite resources um no i don't really know where i learned about bone broth i mean i probably nourishing traditions is the first place but then i just tend to right. just do stuff and and then yeah, we like it you do we don't. don't you <laughs> so i do I my should also say mm. i was just gonna say if um on my own blog farm and hearth.com i do have a bone broth recipe on there just one but i told on there how I, uh, if you don't have a lot of freezer space, I cook my bone broth down when we had really okay. tiny freezer space. I would cook it down and basically make it into bullion cubes. So I put that on the blog there. Oh, great. Thanks. We'll link to that in mm -hmm. the show notes. The, awesome. um, the bone broth that we do here, we, I always do in a slow cooker because my slow cooker is big enough right. to handle the capacity. And right. there's, I've noticed, I've had two or three slow cookers in my time, and I've noticed mm -hmm. there's a difference between the slowness of them. So the first one I had went quite fast, and even on the lowest, the stock was bubbling quite, you know, viciously. Whereas the one I've got at the moment, low really actually is low. And I remember oh, reading awesome. about broth years ago that, you know, you're just supposed to just see the odd bubble coming over the surface yes. yeah. every now and again. Not the rough. Yeah, and my slow cooker now does that. So I leave my beef in there for twenty-four hours, sometimes a little bit more. Um, really, mm -hmm. a long time. I don't leave the chicken in quite as long, um, but then we kind of do what you do in that we often have marrow bones and we eat the marrow if it's still visible. Yes, it's, the beauty's gone into the stock. And then there's sometimes scraps of meat yeah. and stuff, and my husband loves to eat those off there. So oh, yeah. very often we oh, get yeah. a meal out of the the scraps as well as the the broth mm -hmm. which um is lovely obviously to cook anything in any grains any soup yeah. but also like you said to drink it's really nice my son likes it with a little bit of miso stirred in just to give it a little oh, salt that's um, wonderful and it's really tasty yeah oh i i i love putting some turmeric in my broth. I forgot about mm. that. Um, in chicken broth, it's really good. Well, you know that we, I actually haven't been able to run a slow cooker since we moved out here, since they take so much power and we're off grid now. But, um, we, <laughs> we just put the kettle on top of the wood stove 
And so okay. it kind of just cooks as long as the stove is going, which when it's cold, we keep it going pretty much around the clock. So Yeah, so there's nothing extra being used. That's just ideal. Yeah, and and ideally for me, I would do the majority of our bone broth. I would prefer to make and freeze bone broth over the course of winter mm. because when summer comes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't want to be running the stove. Yeah, no, so, um, all right, so next up, let's jump onto sourdough bread. Now, I don't want to go super in-depth on sourdough. This is something we'll have to have its own episode. But I do want to demystify it just a little bit. So I actually put sourdough bread and soaked slashed sprouted quick breads because those breads are also pretty expensive, but it's so easy to make at home. Mm-hmm. So... When I was looking at buying sourdough bread, you can buy cheap sliced loaves, um, cheap sliced loaves like sandwich bread or the you know bigger rustic bowls. So you're running between three to six dollars a loaf. Some even more for the more artisanal ones with garlic or raisins or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, so for so, but for making sourdough bread at home. The essential ingredients for the most core sourdough recipes would be your flour, which could be uh, wheat flour or einkorn or rye. Or I do combinations, and I know you have done combinations also. You need salt, you need water, and you need some of your starter dough, which is basically just, you know, sour flour. Mm. <laughs> so... Those are pretty cheap ingredients. Now, you can do lots of different varieties of sourdough breads, enriched ones with, you know, milk and egg yolks and things like that, Um, all sorts of different flours. And then I know you make the most remarkable lectin-free breads and um, soaked bread, quick breads, which is any take your grains that you're, you know, just imagine you're going to make your gingerbread or cornbread or blueberry muffins or whatever you're going to cook and instead of starting and baking it today you started last night and you just took the flour portion and you let it soak in the liquids you know buttermilk or something overnight Mm -hmm. and then cooked with it the next day so really 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 simple um and a homemade loaf of sourdough bread by my calculations cost about a dollar or even less Wow, that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. It's kind of well. It's a big difference when you're when you're eating <laughs> it every day. When you're eating it every day. Yeah, or when you have a big family, um, or when you're feeding a lot of people. You know, this is the first month since we've lived here that it's just been our family here. So this is the first month, realistically, of just only feeding us, and um, and our family's not even that big you know, by the standards of, I, I'm the second of eight, you know, I have seven siblings and I only have three kids. So there's five of us here, but even that is a decent sized family yeah. to feed. And, um, <laughs> you know, when you start scaling <laughs> some of these things up, it can get really expensive. I remember when we lived in Cornwall in the UK, that that was where I first got into baking sourdough. And I was just happily kind of making our bread and we we had never bought any. And then we used to do our shopping at a farmer's market there. And then one week, a bread stall 
arrived at the farmer's market and the be- the breads look so beautiful but I just remember thinking oh I wonder I wonder what they've got and how much they are and going over and just kind of being knocked when I saw that, <laughs> that the breads yeah. cost like five euro five pounds for a bread there wow wow that was wow. similar to what I was making five or six euros and that kind of you know I saw in other bakeries that's the kind of standard price and it's the same here you know if you go to right the shops where we would shop so the the flour is you know flour mm-hmm. that someone's taken care to choose and perhaps oh I didn't even yeah I didn't even price that loaf <laughs> they're, um, they're looking at five 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 to six to seven euros for for one loaf of mm-hmm. bread mm-hmm. and the flour that we choose here is not the cheapest at all you know, I we no. generally cook with spelt or rye, and I try to get Tuscan flour. And it's not I choose for what I believe in rather than the cheapest. And even then, I mean, I, I worked out that a loaf of bread that I make costs less than two euros, so it's a third to a quarter of the price. And if you went out and bought oh, wheat yeah. instead of spelt, oh, yeah. you're looking at half of that because even the oh, ancient grain oh, even wheats less. are cheaper than spelt. Yep. And so, really, yeah, if you don't have a yeah. problem with wheat, you could you could make a bread for, for literally mm-hmm. like just over a euro, probably, that is going to cost you five or six euros outside. Oh yeah, and we we honestly get it break it down even less because we buy the large bags and um, put them in the freezer or store them. We have a garage area that's really cold. Even Mm. in the summertime, it still stays cool. So we can put flowers in buckets down on the ground, on the concrete, down and back underneath the canning shelves, and they stay really cold so they Mm. don't spoil or anything like that. And um, so buying in, you know, 50-pound bags <laughs> brings yeah. the price down even more, which not everybody's going to do, but even even by using... And we get the most... Probably the most expensive versions of the flowers, as you're saying, you know, ground on special mills that don't overheat mm-hmm. the flower and grown on small farms and organic and all of that. Even then, it's still a dollar or less for a loaf and yeah. and those breads that I priced three to six dollars a loaf you're not even looking at that decent of flour you know that's not even the kind of bread that that this doesn't even compare <laughs> yeah yeah if you yeah. went to the smaller artisanal shops uh like um out in the small towns where there's little bakeries and things like that you'd probably be paying about ten dollars um a loaf out there wow um Books that people can look at, yeah. uh, there's there's a lot online if you want to look up sourdough bread. There's just so much. And some of my favorite places to look, as always, are uh, the traditional cooking school, mm-hmm. um, Nourished Kitchen, and I think the Healthy Home Economist. I can't remember if she has anything about sourdough, but she has lots of good stuff. So um, a book that I really like that one of my really good farm friends that I hope to be interviewing on this podcast one day recommended to me years and years ago is Peter Reinhardt's Artisan Breads Every Day. And he covers, it's not just a sourdough book. Everything in here is not ancestral. It's a really profound education on bread and you can learn to make some, you know, traditional lean French breads and things like that. But his sourdough pizza is so easy. Sourdough pizza crust. When I get to the state, you know, you, you, 
do step one, step two, whatever. And when I get to the step where you're about to roll it out onto your pizza pan, I throw it into a bag and shove it in the freezer. <laughs> and then when I want pizza crust, I can just pull it out and in a day, you know, we've got pizza crust. Um, I haven't done lots of breads of late just because we've been doing gaps for so long, but mm -hmm. not really doing gaps right now. So I might make some breads again. Um, nourishing traditions also has information on sourdough, uh, and soaking for quick breads and mm -hmm. wild fermentation by Sander Alex Katz and also his other book, the art of fermentation. But wild fermentation has some recipes in it for sourdough. So if you want, um, and the artisan breads every day has also a recipe for making a starter from scratch, which is how I made my first one. So nice. you can, yeah, so there's lots in those. There's, um, I remember learning from a Peter Reinhardt book myself. Um, he's got a whole grain book, which. Oh yeah, I, he does. I got mm -hmm. from the library when we were in the UK and learned a lot from. Mm -hmm. I like the, for rye, I like the Rye Baker website. Um, I think the guy's name is Stanley, possibly Ginsburg. Um, but he's got a really great site that's dedicated just to rye baking, which is good. I've got a lot of yeah. recipes on, on my site, not a book's worth, but all the recipes that I love, including my pizza recipe, lots of spelt recipes. Oh, good. And, and your lectin-free? Le the lectin-free is not up there yet, but hopefully it will be soon. Oh, okay. Um, and the other resource I used a lot when I was learning sourdough was there's a forum online called The Fresh Loaf, which is a, you know basically a bunch of forums with thousands of people on there. And you can go on, if you've got a problem, you can post pictures of what's happened to your loaf. You can ask questions. You can search the the archives. Oh, I love and that. every single topic you can imagine is on there, literally. Mm. There's, there's years and years and years of research. And I've met, when I first started, I met a mentor on there, the guy who has been baking for a long time, who just kind of helped hold my hand through my own process of trying to make bread with English flour that was 100% whole grain. And yeah. so there's a real community around that site, which if you've got questions or if you want to learn, it's a great place to go. Right. Awesome. And for anybody who's um, afraid of making sourdough thinking, well, I can't keep up with feeding the sourdough start all the time. When I can't remember what was going on, I, I had uh, I always give starts to my friends, which is fantastic because then if I kill a start, I can call my friends and find out who has a start. I can get back from them. But um, one of my friends, um, when I took a start out that I hadn't used in a while and it wasn't acidic enough, it molded. And I called one of my friends and she said, oh, I still have the one you gave me, you know, yeah. over a year and a half ago in the fridge. I never opened it. Do you think it's still good? And I said, well, let's find out. And sure <laughs> enough, it, it fired right up and we were able to make uh, plenty of bread from it. So um, if you're just not going to be able to use your sourdough start for a while, put it in a container, put the lid on it shove it in the very back of your fridge. It's going to get like black liquid on top. Don't throw that out. That's the good stuff. <laughs> and um, then you can just look online. How do I restart my sourdough start? Yeah. All right. Let's hop on to some beverages, kombucha and water kefir. I'm putting them in the same category. They're a pretty similar process. They both operate with a SCOBY and they're both a delicious bubbly probiotic drink. So mm -hmm. for kombucha, I've done many workshops teaching um, how to make kombucha and 
the benefits of kombucha. And if you go to my blog, then you can find, just search the word kombucha, and I have my class packet there, what I used to use to teach classes. And you can see all the recipes on there. So I'm not going to give my recipe on here because it would just, there's no point. You can easily find it online in 30 seconds. But I was looking at buying kombucha in the store and I do buy kombucha in the store. Say you're traveling or you're out and about and you just want something to drink. You want something fun. It's a fun option, you know, for a nice fun drink that isn't going to kill your gut. <laughs> so on average, the prices are looking to be about $3 for a 16 ounce bottle. Do you have kombucha or water kefir available? And I, the water kefir is the same price. So do you have water kefir or kombucha available to buy um, in Italy? Yeah, we do. Or, or in and the I, UK? We do. I looked at the price and mm -hmm. I was kind of astounded again. So 250, <laughs> mil 250 milliliters, a quarter of a liter was one euro 80 which means wow. that it comes up at 7.20 a litre, 7 euros 20 a litre, which we drink <laughs> a litre of it a day, literally. My son yeah. loves it. It's a great, <laughs> water kefir kombucha are yes. great drinks for kids, you know, to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to kind of give them an, a feeling of soda or a feeling of lemonade or something. Yeah. So we drink a litre of water kefir a day. So we'd be paying seven, if we were buying it, we'd be paying 7 euros 20 a day Whew. just for our water kefir habit, which kind of knocked me yeah. back a bit really well and the value this is not you know when we're talking about you know when you went to the farmer's market and you saw the bread and things like that we're not saying that they are overcharging or the value is not there the value mm. is there you can invest that value and reap the return on that value by doing the processes yourself you might say out of all five of these things we're telling you there is one you never want to touch and you're willing to pay someone to do the work, that's fine. That's totally fine. And that's what those people are there for. But if you say, you know, these are all things I want to have and I just can't pay those grocery store prices, well, you really don't have to. And let me scroll back up to make sure, but all of these are things you can <laughs> turn on and off as the spirit leads. So, yeah. you know, I've taken my kombucha scoby and left it in a container in the garage for two years and never touched it brought it out started making kombucha again the next day you know that you don't have to be doing these things every single day relentlessly without stop i feel like i definitely go in phases on them all you know we'll make a ton of it for a while then we'll kind of ride on something else and make a ton of it again and um so if you if you go to my blog and you grab that recipe i use two kinds of tea when i make uh, my kombucha, I use an organic green tea and an organic black tea, very specific ones. It, it really matters which teas you use. Um, but if you make the tea the way it's prescribed on my recipe, which is fully organic, I remember it's $3 for a 16 ounce bottle at the store and at home you're making five gallons for just under $5. So Very different. it's a, a dollar a gallon, which is significantly different. Now, the process is so unbelievably easy. I will, I'll say the process really short for kombucha. And then Allison, can you say the process really short for water? Yeah, kefir? sure. I yeah. love them. I love them both. And I think that they should both be highlighted. Um, for kombucha, 
essentially, the long and short of it is, <laughs> you'll boil water. And Allison, I'm sure um, every British person is tracking with me right now. <laughs> you'll boil water, then you'll throw in tea. <laughs> uh, you know, per the recipe measurements or per your own inspiration. And then you'll let it steep per the recipe. You'll strain it out and then you'll stir in sugar or a different carbohydrate source, whatever one you like. I use the sugar, organic cane sugar. Um, or you can do honey. I like doing honey too, but sugar actually brings the cost down quite a bit. Yeah. And then, um, and then you'll let it sit and cool. And this is where you could make one part in the evening and then the next day, you know, finish, you know, this doesn't all have to be done in one day. So let it cool and then you'll pour it into glass containers and add some starter tea. So some already fermented kombucha that you have from your last batch. And then typically you can also add in a SCOBY. You don't necessarily have to, but add in a SCOBY and then um, a cloth top so that it can breathe oxygen. And then it will sit until it's as fermented as you like it. I like it to fully consume all the caffeine from the tea and all of the sugar so that it, you know, I'm not getting a sugar hit when I drink it. And then if you want to, you can bottle it and you can use empty beer bottles <laughs> or old. Um, I just usually put it into mason jars. You can mm -hmm. use uh, any... Any bottle really that you like that you so have. So does your does your um, kombucha taste less sweet than the store bought kombucha? Uh, yeah, I would say it definitely tastes. Because I remember sweet. having kombucha before um, from stores a long time ago, years ago, and it just being far too sweet for me. I just well, I, I think a lot it. of stores, a um, uh, lot stores, <laughs> not the stores. Um, there are a number of brands that add sugar post-fermentation. Oh, I see. So there would be more sugar in it. And then there's usually a pretty considerable amount of fruit juice or some other source in it. I don't like mine to taste like vinegar. I'm not a fan of that. So mm. I don't let it ferment until it gets to that point. It, I like to take it off right when it has this real light, airy, fruity, almost grassy sort of effervescent quality to it um which that that effect is um the the tea you choose is really important in getting that you know okay. different teas will imbue a different flavor so tell us about your water kefir so the water kefir is um maybe just a, a bit simpler than kombucha a little bit in that you literally just put mm -hmm. water and i use sugar and you dissolve the sugar in the water and then you add the kefir grains to that. Then I Damn. lightly close the lid and mm -hmm. I leave that for maybe one to two days. It starts to ferment and you see the bubbles coming up, the grains increase in size. And then I strain that through a sieve into a swing top jar, swing top bottle. The reason I want to put it in a swing top bottle for this second phase, the second ferment, is because I like to capture the bubbles and keep them in there. And with the swing top mm -hmm. lid, I do that. So once yeah. I've strained it through the sieve, I then add things to this bottle. So I will usually 
add some form of fruit which gives it a, a bit of extra sugar at that stage which will create more fermentation and therefore create more bubbles for you to capture yes. and I often add ginger ginger gives it a zing but ginger also has lots of organisms on this on the outside of it that help it with mm-hmm. the fizz and then I mean I sometimes I add different types of um I put fennel seeds, different types of spices, cardamom seeds. I put different fruit in. Sometimes we do, you know, if there's some local mango, Sicilian mango, we'll put that in. Orange. Very often I start with something that's not water. So I'll start with maybe a tea. Um, I made some with cacao husk tea. I remember putting a picture on Instagram a while back of that. And usually to allow my grains to increase which is what I like I do two-thirds a kind of a, a golden cane sugar and then one-third a completely whole um, integrale we call it in Italian I like a whole sugar which is dark with nothing removed yes and that yes. mixture tends to make my kefir grains grow um, and then the second ferment gives that liquid effervescence and sometimes you know serious effervescence you have to be careful when you un- uncap the, the lid because you find it your fringe goes up in the air and you, um, but my but my son loves that and it's got the flavor of the fruit in it and the ginger and the spices or whatever I've put in there and then it's got that fizz which just makes it really really tasty and fun like you said it's a fun drink I tend to ferment mine for quite yeah. a long time because I don't we're just not used to the the taste of the sugar. We we're used to having more right, sour flavours. Right. So I've had situations where other people have tried mine and it doesn't taste like the shop kefir because it's not sugary. Um, so that yeah. that's just the way we do it here because we prefer to have more of the fermentation and less of of the actual sugar left. Um, but with all the flavours and with the sparkle, it's just it's such a fun drink. Well, that's one of the most fantastic things about learning these processes at home. The first time I had a bottle of kombucha, I thought it was disgusting. <laughs> mm. And now I take that same bottle I had, which was a store, or as you say, a shop kombucha. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's it's just like, ooh, this is, you know, this is dessert. You know, this is this yeah. is what we have. You know, we had a girls' night, and so we said, well, let's get wild and get some shop kombucha <laughs> so that was our wild drink was some like really fruity kombucha from the store <laughs> but uh if you are making it at home and you just can't stand that sourness you know start with it pretty sweet and yeah. you will find that over time your yeah. taste really really will evolve I promise you it really will and if it doesn't and you always stay in that kind of sweet place well okay so that's fine who cares? <laughs> You're making kombucha. Yeah, you get to choose. Can... Yeah, it's it's all up to you. Um, for books about kombucha, I really keep coming back to the same one. So if you have to pick one, Wild Fermentation by Sandra Alex Katz. Mm-hmm. He covers a lot of live culture foods in that. And then if you want to just learn more about the art of fermentation and history and things like that, then yes, the art of fermentation by the same author. And another really fun book, if you just want to get fun and crazy with flavors and adventuresome sort of, you know, mocktails and things, Kombucha Revolution by Stephen Lee is a really fun, just super gorgeous, really eye appealing, juicy book, really bright colors and lots of 
beautiful pictures of, you know, tall Grolsch top bottles with, you know, kombucha and lavender and stuff like that. So that's a really fun one. And of course you can find lots of information online. Um, the Cultures for Health blog has tons and tons of information about fermented foods. And um, if you go to my blog and you're looking for the kombucha, also look up fruit scrap vinegar. Vinegar is a similar process. It also grows with the SCOBY and um, is also just really, really, really easy to make, really fun. And it's another trash food because I use scraps of fruit to make the vinegar. It's just yeah. literally garbage, you know, and there you get your really expensive, super high dollar <laughs> raw organic <laughs> vinegars. Okay, so that will close the book on kombucha. Any one of these we could do, you know, a 10-day series on. But <laughs> let's jump into kefir slash yogurt. I want to cover them both. They both kind of fall in the same category. They're just kind of regional versions of the same thing. So when I looked up buying them at the store, you are looking for an organic. I could not even find a raw milk version. But if you're looking for organic at the very least and not even necessarily grass-fed. It was not always able to find ones that confirmed the cows are grass-fed, um, but they're ranging for a quart of 32 ounces. It's five to $7, sometimes higher. And I was looking for unflavored ones. Mm -hmm. um, were you able to find kefir or yogurt for sale where you live? Yeah, I concentrated on, on kefir. I pronounce it kefir. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's right, but I, uh -huh. I can't change now after 15 years of saying kefir. Mm -mm. Um, and no. I found <laughs> a, a goat's milk because we use goat's milk. So I wanted to try and compare. So I found a goat's milk kefir that was €2.90 for 200 millilitres. And again, I kind of thought, right, OK, well, when we do a batch, we do two litres of milk. That's how much we get from the farm. And so that's right. 10 times what what that two little 200 milliliter mm. one is mm. so you're looking at 29 euros for the wow. amount of milk kefir which we get that milk for less than two euros oh, yeah. so that was that was <laughs> the most staggering difference that I could find that um yeah there's such That's a amazing. huge difference between buying that one pre-packaged in a shop and making right. that here and we get organic, grass-fed, raw, whole milk. Yeah. And it's $10 a gallon. And so that puts us at $2.50 a quart for um, kefir yogurt versus the 5 to $7. So we look at at least half, if not a quarter of the price of the store-bought one. And the process is so easy. So re-pronunciation, um, both ways are correct. Uh, the way when I learned about kefir, I was uh, 17 years old, I think. I think I was 17. And uh, my sister and I went on an amazing trip all summer to Russia and mm -hmm. visited all kinds of different places and stayed with different friends all over. And one of the places we went was we took a 24-hour train ride out to the Caucasus Mountains, and that is where kefir is from. I had never heard of it, but everybody there introduced us to kefir, 
And I just, I was like, what is this disgusting, weird yogurt in a can? Like, what are you trying to feed me? This is like rotten milk. That's what we called it. Like, this is rotten milk. Oh, man. Send me back, please. (laughs) Go back and Mm. repent. And and we try everything. You know, I I always try everything at least once, you know. But um, when I came back to the States, I, I, I thought about it later. And I, you know couple years passed and then I wanted to find it and and make it and and I couldn't find it to buy so I thought I'll just make it and then I read online that you could buy starts for it so I called the store and I said do you have kefir starts and the lady spent the whole she could not figure out what I was talking about and then finally she said do you mean kefir (laughs) and I said I don't know is that the same thing so I I learned um, kefir is an Americanized pronunciation um, but they're both totally usable and no problem with saying either one either way. So um, yogurt and kefir both are so stupid easy to make at home. Mm. It's not even allowable. Um, kefir, I, I make mine the, the most, the positively laziest way. And I, I learned this from an amazing lady who I used to get my raw milk from who had been making her kefir this way for 15 years. So she just pours some of her finished kefir into a jar and then she pours in her milk and she kind of stirs it all up, puts the lid on and lets it sit overnight. Then the next morning she pours a little bit of out into a jar and then takes the rest of it and drinks it you know, for her morning Mm -hmm. kefir. Um, so I never even get the grains. (laughs) I'm always transferring it over too quickly. And so I don't even grow the grains and, um, haven't had a problem with it. I have seen, um, one of my friends who was, um, an old Russian lady, she used a tea bag and she put her kefir grains in the tea bag and dropped that into her milk. So she didn't have to strain them out each Mm -hmm. time. Um, and then you can also just, so kefir grains are tiny scobies, which we referred to during kombucha, but that means a symbiotic colony or symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. It's just an acronym, SCOBY. And um, there's all different kinds of scobies, but the kefir scobies are, and the water kefir ones that you also refer to, they just look like little chunky grains. And they're different, and, the two. Um, There's, you can't use yes. the milk kefir grains in the water. No, no, yes. They, they each consume different things where the milk kefir feeds off of lactose. And that's actually where we get the term lactase for that enzyme because they thought that was um, what they all did in, um, in lacto-fermentation. They thought all that fermenting process was lactase. But I anyways, think that's quite an important thing to, to bring out. Yes. The process mm-hmm. of making milk kefir actually does decrease the lactose content and to it does in some it studies does. completely wipe out the lactose content mm-hmm. so if you have any problems with digesting milk but yeah. you want to bring dairy back into your diet it's a great place to start yeah that is the place to begin is with kefir really is the best and um we should have mentioned that with a sourdough too that fermenting sourdough yeah. consumes about 90 percent of the gluten in the sourdough so um uh, to so to make kefir, how do you make your kefir? We use the grains. So okay, we yeah, bought yeah. some grains years ago, and Jeez. we literally just. I usually sterilize the jar before I start, mm-hmm, and then we mm-hmm. we've got the milk that m- that my husband's just gone and got from the farm. We literally pour it into the jar, plop the grains in there, give it a stir, 
just put the lid on very loosely and then if it's summer we just leave it out if it's if it's winter and it's quite cold I've got a DIY proofing box that my partner made for me which there are pictures of them on my website and an article about if you're (laughs) adventurous and want to make your own proofing (laughs) box and so we set that for a warm temperature in the winter because our house actually isn't that warm and I will put that in my proofing box if it's on it's always on for other kind of ferments because I've kind of got bubbles all over my kitchen and that then makes the process <laughs> quicker because there's actually a difference in flavor yes. I found between leaving it I out agree. when it's cooler and then the milk yes. actually sours you know that mm-hmm, there's a balance mm-hmm. between the milk souring and the milk kefiring and you know both right. of them taste nice but they're different so it's nice to be able yeah, to, I definitely... to have it how you want it Yes, the the faster that it ferments, the sweeter it is. I, I definitely mm. would agree with that. Um, my favorite way to do it is in the um, dehydrator. <laughs> yeah, it, okay, it's like a, a proofing box. Then. Yeah, yeah, but it takes power. So I haven't done that since we moved here. Um, and it's actually funny. Our house is warmer during the winter because we keep the wood stove going, um. and then <laughs> in the summer our house actually stays pretty cool. So <laughs> we have the opposite problem. Um, and when I lived in Virginia, yes, overnight I would have the perfectly thick um, kefir, but here it can sit on the counter for even three days, and then it just starts to clabber and separate before it even ferments. It can be so cool. So um, I. I either set up the um, set up the dehydrator, which, like I said, I don't want to do here because of the power. Or this is a really funny way that I learned to make yogurt when I lived in Virginia. My friend takes a boot dryer. I don't know if you have one of those, but we have no. boot dryers, and um, it's just like two pegs with vents on top that you put your boots upside down on, and it dries your boots out. And Gary's had one that he bought when he was. 18 when he was an iron worker and we still use it today and um you put the boot dryer down on the floor put your jars next to it and then put a big box on top so <laughs> it blows out warm air does it temperature <laughs> yeah. yes but a really Gosh. really low flow you can't even feel it with your hand it's such a low low flow but it creates perfect funny because <laughs> A lot of people who um, you either work in um, construction, like he was working mm, in the ironworker mm. trade, um, or if you live out in the country, then a lot of people have boot dryers and they're just, you know, they're just a real cheap little thing. And um, so that's a great way to do it. <laughs> um, <fun>. The <laughs> I know it's so it's so weird, but it it just works. Um, also, I, it's worth saying that if you like cultured butter, when you make your kefir, don't separate the cream off the milk. Leave the cream yeah. on top and let the kefir uh, ferment and then just pick. The, it'll just be a slab of cream on top. You can pick it off and just run it through your blender and make it into butter really easily. So that's There's great... so many lovely things you can do. I, I remember experimenting oh, last yeah. year with a recipe from um, uh, Dara Goldstein, Russian book, where I kind of cooked mm-hmm. the milk first really, really gently to reduce it. Mm-hmm. So it went mm-hmm. kind of a bit a bit more creamy and a yeah. bit more sweet. And then yeah. I fermented it with the with the grains. And yeah. it was like a beautiful custard kind of naturally mm. sweet dessert, which was really wonderful. Oh, what I wanted to friends actually 
Oh no, go ahead. I wanted to say before I forget that once I've <laughs> once I it's done and I've strained those grains out, they can keep in the fridge in water. I just put them in water in the fridge and they can keep there for weeks without um, having any milk in them. So you can have a break, like you said, or you can freeze them. When I've moved right. countries, what I've done is I've mm. taken my kefir grains and I've frozen them in water in a very small container, a very small, small tubberware. And then literally the morning that I'm about to move countries, <laughs> I've taken the kefir <laughs> grains out of the freezer and then carried them with me. And they've lasted through many moves or, you know, for a holiday or something, they right, could last by right. just putting them in the freezer. Right. That's fabulous. You know, when we moved from when we moved from Virginia, we drove. I, I want to say it took us a week or so because we stopped and saw some things along the way. Uh, drove from Virginia to Washington State, and I had this huge special cooler with all my ferments in it. Yeah, <laughs> all these jars and bottles kind of bubbling and clanking so around, and, <laughs> and a big huge jar full of scobies and. Um, I, some people definitely thought, why don't you just throw that stuff away? That's you just gone. And, <laughs> and I was like, uh, these, these are my friends. Like, these are babies. I grew these, like, yeah. I, I grew these vegetables and then I fermented them and, and they are moving with me. And I, I still have just one of those jars left and kind of milking it along, you know, for special occasions. I can take a little bit out <laughs> one of those jars of You, you reminded like me that, that earlier this year we... <laughs> We had a kind of a disaster here, housing-wise, and we moved nine times in two months. And, and oh. each time we moved, we were on the train because we don't drive, <laughs> we don't have a car. We had this sort of cool bag thing with clinking beer <laughs> bottles and stars of sauerkraut. And my husband's kind of like this pack horse carrying this thing along and it's clinking. But we couldn't not do it. We just couldn't. No, absolutely not. The, the thing is, once you start fermenting, these things gain such value to you and you can't just yeah. hop out and buy them any anymore. You know, the, the quality is so different than the store bought. And um, so if for, for making um, kefir, if you don't have any grains, one, you could find a really good high quality store bought kefir mm -hmm. um, and start with that. Or you can ask ask online in forums or groups or on your social media. Does anybody have kefir mm -hmm. grades willing to share with me or water kefirs, sourdough starters, whatever? Um, you can also order them from Cultures for Health. And that's another way, actually, you can save your own uh Kefir grains, you could dehydrate them. Yeah. Um, but you can order them from culturesforhealth.com. They're not sponsoring us or anything, but I really love the company. I've been ordering from them for, you know, 10 years and have had great success with everything I've gotten from them. Um, for books, of course, Wild Fermentation <laughs> is right at the top of the stack. Uh, he really is the king of ferments, the art of fermentation, if you want to learn all about the history and the origin of ferments. Nourishing Traditions, of course, covers lots of dairy fermentation and, um, you know, key in, like nutritional reasons why. Um, the Home Creamery is a book I have that is just a really simple small paperback book with lots of recipes for your, you know, cow. <laughs> and then um, if you really get into doing kefirs and things like that, um, yogurt, there's all kinds of different cultures you can get. So um, different 
regional bacteria just like that you know Finland or Norway that different places are known for um, and you can make kind of unique yogurts like that so um, yogurt processes vary based on the culture that you get but they're all still very simple they're just step-by-step -step things I also wanted to say that if um, mm -hmm. I remember if someone's kind of not sure about a dairy allergy that the kefir grains can be used in other milks so we've made kefir mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. grains with coconut milk we've That's made kefir grains with That's oat true. milk we've made kefir grains with hazelnut milk it's important to feed them in normal milk in cow milk or sheep milk or goat right. milk every now and right. again because they won't grow in those other milks that's my understanding but they do do a good job in fermenting other milks so you don't have to restrict yourself right. just to um animal right. milk no that's a great um that's a great point and thank you for adding that in mm. So, last but not least, the king of all ferments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think everyone knows what it's going to be. <laughs> oh, the one and only sauerkraut. <laughs> all right. So, finding live, active, fermented sauerkraut, you have to be careful and watch what you're buying because there are jars of canned, shelf-stable, so-called kraut. They're usually made with vinegar. They're not probiotic. They're not alive. They're dead foods. <laughs> what you want is, you know, the sauerkraut that has to be refrigerated and it would say, you know, use by or keep refrigerated, things like that. When I was looking at them online, it seems like they wildly vary in price. Okay. But I saw ranges, you know, seven to nine dollars for sixteen ounce, so a pint. <laughs> you and your ounces. Um, it's, just, it's really confusing. Sorry. Cross European. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're uh, we're the rebel colonials, yeah. and we're clinging to our guns and our ounces <laughs> 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 and our coffee. <laughs> Okay, <clears throat> don't tell the queen. Um, but I, I do have to look online all the time when I find recipes. And I'm like, wait, how many Me milliliters too. is this? <laughs> Me too. <clears throat> but um, uh, you want the jarred, refrigerated, active, live, fermented kraut. So 7 to $9-ish for 16 ounces. What were you finding over there in Italy? Yeah, so I found grams, 330 grams. So a, a third of a, <laughs> of a kilo was just over two euros. And I compared that then to what I do, which is we tend to make two kilograms roughly at a time. So five to six times what you could buy in that jar. And we buy one massive cabbage for that, which when we buy the, the most top quality cabbage that there is, you know, a local one that's yeah. organic yeah. in the health food store, supporting a local yeah. business we pay perhaps four euros for it whereas if i buy it in the jars i'm going to be paying 12 euros obviously yep. you can buy cabbages yeah. for much cheaper than that but still it's substantially of cheaper course. to make it that is a thing that boggles my mind and we have definitely run into that with every single one of these foods so far is that even when you buy the primo primo premium top of the line yeah. ingredient you still come out spending half of what you would yeah. if not less yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that's just saying if you in and even if you say hey, i'm gonna meet halfway i'm not gonna get the primo primo but i'll yeah. get at least organic even then you're spending you know a quarter or a tenth of the cost all right 
making sauerkraut. <laughs> there are so many ways to make sauerkraut. There are thousands of ways to make sauerkraut. Sauerkraut yeah. and versions of sauerkraut exist in pretty much every ancestral uh <clears throat> what do you call it tradition. Mm -hmm. Um you don't need to buy anything. <laughs> you don't need to get fancy containers, you know, fancy bubbling kits or sets or anything. You certainly can if you want to, or you can get those things down the line when you've been making the kraut a while, you've earned your stripes, you want to spend more money on it, but you literally don't need to. It's just that making sauerkraut has um, blossomed as, as a pastime, shall we say, and so people are seeing that they could make money off of it, which there's nothing wrong with that because some of those products are remarkable and I want to buy them myself. But you do not need them. Mm. You absolutely do not. You need an empty jar from something you already ate. <laughs> you need a napkin or a towel out of the drawer, a rubber band that you took off of a package of mail or a stick of broccoli and your ingredients. I mean, mm. that's really all you need. Yeah, I agree. I've it's really seen... super simple. Yeah, and 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 if you just it be you know something I think would be really fascinating. This is the coffee table book I would buy. If somebody would just go around the world and take pictures in all these grandmas and grandpas' houses of people making sauerkraut yeah. and just all the different ways, even just the number of homes I've been into myself that I've seen um, things being made. I've seen. Um, one house I went to, they had a big like apothecary jar with whole cabbages submerged in salt water. And then he had bamboo skewers just fastened across the top to hold oh, it down. Wow. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've seen stone weights. I've used plates. I've used jars of food that I canned. I mean, anything you can imagine. One of my favorite things to do is take when I make my sauerkraut, I shred my cabbage and then I take the butt of the cabbage. I always tell when I teach classes on kraut, I tell my students, save the outer leaves and save the butt because yeah. then I lay the leaves across the top of the cabbage yeah. and I shove the butt down on top and, and then I um, put something across the top to hold everything down under the brine. So, yeah. um, so that is the most important key in kraut is keeping it under the brine. So the way you make sauerkraut, so simple. I'm just going to boil it down to the basics and there's a billion spin-offs. Every country, every home, every mother, every grandmother has their own version of this, but this is the basics of it. You'll take a cabbage, you'll chop it or shred it, you'll salt it, you'll hammer it <laughs> with a rolling pin or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um and then you'll shove it into a jar and if the kraut if the cabbage is nice and juicy you'll have enough water to cover the top if not you'll just mix salt water to make brine and pour that enough to cover it you'll layer something on top of it to keep all the pieces the substrate all the pieces of cabbage underneath the brine and then you'll let it bubble and bubble and bubble until it's you know a couple days however long you want um to get it as uh to start getting really fermenty. And then I like to then put a cap on it and transfer it to the refrigerator for a year or more to get a really nice sour ferment going. Mm -hmm. um, 
you do not have to wait that long, but a lot of people I've heard say that the true flavor in kraut does not begin to emerge until after a year. And I'd have to say I totally agree with that. <laughs> yeah, we've done kind of um, various things over process? the years that um, mm-hmm. we've left them longer. And we've also had yeah. emergency situations where we had to make some suddenly and eat yep. it within yep. four days. And it is a very <laughs> different flavor. Same. And yeah, it's, it's still it's good a, though. It's, it's a matter good. of taste. Generally, we leave ours about Mm -hmm. six weeks we don't have a load of storage space here so we make it in big batches right there's a I detailed my process and a blog post very early on on creating my site I think it's called super simple sauerkraut um, where I've got all the measurements of the salt that I use and the brine that I use Um, and we I like to put caraway seeds in because I love the taste of caraway seeds but yeah I throw loads that's so European of you (laughs) it's just it's lovely I throw lots of other things in, I and agree. it's a good excuse to throw garlic in if you're not fermenting garlic separately. I'm an absolute believer in the I... power of fermented garlic, so it's a great way to put garlic in. <laughs> yes. Um, I can't and we leave ours... make kraut without garlic. Yeah, exactly. We leave ours for six weeks usually. <laughs> the one thing that I would say that has helped us in the process is after we've shredded and stirred the salt in, rather than pound it straight away, very often we put a lid on the bowl and put it in the fridge overnight and then we come back to it the next morning and the salt has done its work for us so already there's lots of liquid and then when you pound it it's really Mm. easy to get much more of the liquid out um and so we love that do that and then if i need extra brine i'll make up a brine to go on it we do use the little glass pickle weights which i bought like 10 or 12 of five or six years ago and so I'll do the those. same as you. I put the little <laughs> cabbage leaf over the top to keep everything under the water. Mm-hmm. And then I'll put two or three pickled pebbles on and shut the jar immediately and then put it. And I usually cover it with a tea towel because I think light affects lacto-fermentation negatively. So I cover it in yes. a tea towel. So make sure that it's fermenting as, as well as it can do. The, the, like you said, the most important thing is keeping that cabbage under the brine. The amount of people who said to me, I can't do sauerkraut because it just goes mouldy, you know. And mm. the absolute essential thing is that if the cabbage is over the top of the brine, it needs to have an anaerobic environment. And if it's over yes. the top of the brine, brine then it's going to potentially go mouldy. And so keep an eye on it. If you've jarred it, if you've lidded it, maybe do something called burping it where you just open yes. it up over the sink. Be careful because we've had sauerkraut juice go all up the walls when we've not done it over <laughs> the sink because this fermentation Whoops. is so fizzy. Um, so do that every couple of days to make sure the pressure's not building up and also check the amount of liquid that's in there. And if you see that it starts to decrease in the first week of fermentation, then just put a little bit more brine in there because that's the crucial part where there's the, ba- there's the fight between the lactic acid bacteria and other bacteria. After that, it doesn't matter so much because the lactic ba- bacteria has got a hold and you don't necessarily need to have it under the brine for the entire period. Right. But at the beginning, right. it's very important. And seriously, out of all the people who've asked me about sauerkraut and all the classes I've done on sauerkraut, that is the key, the amount of brine and keeping the veggies under it. Absolutely. And if you, the the salt, yeah, the salt is what's standing between, it takes about two or three days for that lactic acid to build up Mm. to the point that it's stable enough to keep the bacteria and the mold from taking over. So that salt is just there to stand between you and the, um, 
and the bacteria. The you can also add an inoculation, you yeah. know, pour some brine from a batch you already made before just to whey. speed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or some whey. Yep, you can definitely do that. And there's so much information online. It can be too much information yeah. online. You really only need to learn from just find one blog, one recipe, and just work on that. Um, the Healthy Home Economist, her blog is where I first learned how to make sauerkraut. Okay. Um, you can also look traditionalcookingschool.com has it. Nourished Kitchen has it. My blog, farmandhearth.com has it. What's your blog or your website again? Allison? Ancestralkitchen.com simply ancestralkitchen.com right. and there's so a resources page on it and under there you'll find Perfect. the sauerkraut along with all my other Perfect. recipes and starters for sourdoughs and everything else yeah and if you go to my blog the farm and hearth one also just search the word sauerkraut and then there's a downloadable packet the one that i use for my classes that you can use so the cost of making um sauerkraut at home um if you're using the pretty premium cabbage um making a quart and a half is two to three dollars so uh definitely way less than let's see a quart um could run 14 to 18 dollars if you bought it at the store so two to three dollars at home Mm. for a quart and a half not too bad Mm. um books on uh sauerkraut of course, wild fermentation. <laughs> um, the art of fermentation has a lot about. Th- I, I think that book is helpful because it's not recipes, as I've said before, but it does get you seeing the gazillions of different oh, it's a ways. Wonderful read. That, yeah, it's just it's it's just drool. It's just yeah. drool all over. Um, Asian pickles by Karen Solomon. I absolutely love Karen Solomon. I love her as a person. I love her as a cookbook author. Um, but uh, Asian pickles, sweet, sour, salty, cured, and fermented preserves. There's lots of different pickle recipes in there. Um, the Nourishing Traditions, of course, has some fermentation. And another book, Keeping Food Fresh, Old World Techniques and Recipes. It has lots of really just old school ways of preserving food which would include uh, sauerkraut and fermentation so you know look all those books up and get the one that's cheapest (laughs) it'll get you going (laughs) um yeah i i love sauerkraut because like you said you throw caraway seeds in it you could throw garlic in it i throw dill in it i throw uh really whatever i have whatever is fresh whatever's happening i throw it in there and um I agree with you. We make big, we have everything up to, I don't even know how many gallons our biggest crock holds, maybe 50. I don't know, but we have, you know, one gallon crocks up to big crocks and I've done it in quart jars and pint jars and half gallon jars and, um, jam jars and jelly jars and pickle jars, (laughs) just really whatever I've got sitting around. So, yeah. All right. So, not only have we recorded our longest podcast to date, hey. I wanted to throw one <laughs> wanted to throw one more bonus thing out there to people, and that is to remember if you're talking cheap ancestral foods that can be pricey to buy at the store, especially if they're prepared, but just absolutely bottom of the barrel cheap at home, do not forget beans and soup. 
beans can be easily soaked, fermented, prepared at home. So, so, so easy um, and easily cooked at home. And then soup has just been the staple of humanity <laughs> forever. And a big pot of soup and a loaf of bread. Um, I have fed, you know, spur of the moment, huge groups of people for pennies with um, big pots of soup and bread and, and, you know, throw some hard boiled eggs in the bowls of soup and people just like pass out. They can't believe how fancy and amazing the food is. Um, some books for that include uh, 12 months of monastery soups. <laughs> this is a book I've used since mm -hmm. I was a kid. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with this book. It's by um, a French monk, I think. Mm -hmm. But um, I always feel like if I have no money, I can eat out of this book for free for like months. I don't know why. All his recipes are very, very, very simple. They're, mm -hmm. you know, basically vegetables and broth, um, but they're just so delicious. And then also another good book just for reference is Long Way on a Little by Shannon Hayes. Mm -hmm. And a book that I just encountered a few days ago and was sent to me for review is called Easy Beans by Jackie Freeman. It is not nice. itself an ancestral book, but if you know how to prepare beans ancestrally, you have no problem, you know, just doing that one step in advance of every recipe. Mm. But I love the book just because she talks about lots of things that I would never have thought of using beans for. Like um, you can soak, ferment, cook, and then bake them and make them into snacks and things like that. And she makes, mm. you know, lentils into morning smoothies and I don't know just all kinds of interesting stuff so I remember putting lentils yeah. in a fermented lentils in a bread a few years ago I had a bread with fermented oh yeah um, yeah but I yeah I wanted That's to just add a very quick thing to that which is I've been researching the Polish soup Zurek recently and just the amount Ooh. of tradition in Europe of having simple soups with the vegetables that are in season a broth yeah and and very much so here in in Italy you know, the soups, the traditional soups here are broth, scraps of meat or yes. scraps of fat, mm -hmm. and then beans in as well as kale yeah. and dark green vegetables because it extends the soup further and gives you the, the different nutritional profile whilst also giving you a really hearty meal that you can that you can literally kind of lap up with some bread. Mm. I tell you... Important. <laughs> Nothing more comforting than a good soup and yeah. a big, crusty chunk of bread. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think we've covered quite a bit and wow. hopefully left everybody reeling with ideas. <laughs> and I will I will um, put all these book titles together and we can figure out how we want to. Um, we can put those in the show notes and yeah, the websites great. that I mentioned. I'll, I'll just put all that in one document. We can post that up there. And is there anything else you wanted to throw out there before we wrap this one up? Only just that the, you know, the detail of making these things comes becomes habit and it becomes easy the other important aspect which we might want to deal with in another podcast is making the time and prioritizing yes. them because people are convinced now that it's really doesn't cost much to make these foods at home and you're paying a lot in the store right. but then it's the process of committing and having the time and I think maybe that's something that we could talk about and share what we do and how these have gradually become part of our lives in a future episode yeah we can do that right after the episode where Alison 
says how she gave away her iPhone. Yeah, it's the important part. Do you know how much more bread I made after I got rid of my iPhone and how much saner I felt? Uh, <laughs> you don't have to tell me. Mm. This is awesome, Alison. Thank you for jumping on with me and chatting us up. I learned so much from Thank you every you. time that we talk. Yeah, so really same. appreciate it. Same. Thank you, Andrew. All right. Un- until next time. Yeah. Ciao. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram, Andrea's at Farm and Hearth and Allison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Bye.